Hello, everybody. Anne Louise Gittleman here for the First Lady of Nutrition podcast, and do I have a treat for you. I have a gentleman who's going to be speaking about the new breakthroughs in integrative cancer therapy, and Dr. Dwight McKee is quite, quite a scholar. He has a very, very impressive background as he brings a comprehensive approach to the practice of oncology and hematology, and he's at the forefront, the absolute forefront of the application of integrative medicine in the field of cancer care. This is the kind of doctor you need to know know about. Dr. McKee is board certified in medical oncology, hematology, nutrition, and integrative and holistic medicine. So Dr. McKee, how are you this day and what is new in integrative cancer therapy? Well, I'm, I'm doing great, Anne-Louise. And um, oh, there's, you know, all kinds of, of new things. You know, I started out doing alternative cancer therapy in the late 1970s. Oh, and, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yes, I did. I started out doing. I explored uh, virtually all of the inter- uh, of the alternative cancer therapies of that time, from uh, seventy six till eighty eight, and you know, I was able. I, I mostly worked with stage four patients who'd been given up on by, you know, their conventional oncologists. And one of the most frustrating things for me was that the patients who had an oncologist who were working with me and I was working with diet and lots of supplements and lots of visualization and, you know, lots of, you know, confidence building, just, you know, just convincing them that they could recover and trying to put them in touch with other people who had recovered because that's the biggest thing is, is in in cancer really is the fear. I Um, know. I know the fear. Uh, fear, fear keeps people in a sympathetic, you know, nervous system overdrive. And to heal from cancer, you need the opposite. You need the parasympathetic system. That's what runs your immune system. That's what runs your digestion. So people get trapped in fear and, and their parasympathetic nervous system can't function, so they can't heal. So I would get them out of fear and they would be improving and tumors would be shrinking and their... Um, performance status it is what is called in in clinical oncology was increasing and then they'd go back and visit their oncologist and they'd tell them you know how excited they are what they're doing and and how much better they feel and they'd say yeah yeah well you'll be dead in six months anyway and you know that doesn't matter uh you know the statistics show you'll be dead in six months to a year Mm. and then the air would just come out of that balloon and they would come back to me say their oncologist said that they were going to die and it was so frustrating to you know kind of start all over with them and i i was able to help i was able to really significantly help about 20 percent of stage four cancer patients Um, i even went to mexico in 1980 and set up uh, an integrative cancer hospital and we ended up with steve mcqueen in that hospital Oh, well, um, I, I think I remember that, but he didn't die of cancer, did he? Just no, no he died of he died of a um, a blood clot after we did a large debulking surgery to get all the mesothelioma debulked from his belly, and we were going to make that into a vaccine. He his tumors were shrinking, um, and he was improving, but he just couldn't deal with the you know he had like an eight month pregnancy of tumor in his belly, and we took all that out. And 12 hours after that, he, he, this is, 
you know, if I had known what I know now, I would have had him on low, low molecular weight heparin, but it, that didn't even exist in 1980. Um, so yeah, he died of a blood clot that went to his lungs and, and that was it. But that's what we found in that setting was that we could really help about 20% of stage four cancer patients, which doesn't sound like much, but it's 20% more than conventional therapy, uh, especially at the time was able to do. That's not, that's no longer the case because of the new immunotherapies. Um, but there's so much promise of the, putting together the new immunotherapies with nutrition and lifestyle and supplementation and botanicals. Um, I, I just can't tell you. To give you an example, when the, the um, you know, I was in, when I went, well, to finish that story, uh, in the late 80s, I decided that if I was, you know, I, I really was, was drawn to working with cancer patients and I decided if I was gonna do that, it might be a good idea for me to become an oncologist. So I went back into training. I had initially gone to medical school, done a year internship, which is what most doctors that went into holistic medicine did at that time, and, uh, and many still do. And then, you know, started practicing and I practiced for 12 years. So I went back and had to do a second internship in internal medicine because the one I had done was, was a little bit of everything. And so I had to do a second internship with people that had just come out of medical school. I'd been in practice 12 years. And then two years of internal medicine residency and then three years of hematology oncology fellowship. And then I practiced integrative oncology in San Diego and Montana for six years. And then I, um, I left practice and I started doing integrative cancer consulting for uh, what ended up being about 60 um, practitioners, both naturopaths and medical doctors, um, some herbalists who were taking care of cancer patients on the integrative side. But there was so much they didn't know about oncology. So I was really able to um, educate them about how their, you know, what, what their oncologist is likely to say or to them or think or what, how they're going to present it and so forth. So I did that for um, about 15 years. And then that got a little overwhelming because there was just, there's so much demand for this. I just, you know, I, I, I couldn't deal with it, but I've, I've trained about 40 or 50 people. Um, and w one of the people that I've collaborated with in training is Donnie Ance, who is a very oh, gifted yes. Uh, yes, herbalist yes, yes. and self-taught. He knows more molecular oncology than most, than almost any oncologist that I know. <laughs> oh, amazing. And, you know, there were, there were some gaps in his, in his knowledge that I was able to fill in. So we made a very good, very good team. And what I wanted to tell you is when the, the, the breakthrough in immunotherapy was the discovery of how tumor cells disable the immune response to them. And uh, these antibodies were developed that are called checkpoint inhibitors, which specifically interfere in the way that tumors disable the immune system. And the, the, the Nobel Prize for Medicine was for that uh, breakthrough last year. But when these were in clinical trials, um, Donnie had four of his clients in four different clinical trials. And there were about 25 or 30 
people, all stage four cancer patients in these trials. And in each of those four trials, Donnie's client, who was, they were doing huge amount, they were doing a smoothie, they were doing a, a, a personalized tincture blend, they were doing lots of, of supplements, very careful diet, um, specific detoxification practices. Um, his protocols are really quite demanding and people who are able to do them do very well. Well, but the, the point I'm getting to is that in all four of those clinical trials, Donnie's clients were the only ones that had a complete response to this new immunotherapy. Hmm. That, was, that was when I said, hmm, there's something here. Because, you know, these, these new immunotherapies are very exciting, but they have response rates in the 10 to 20%, just like I was getting, you know, 40 years ago with intensive uh, nutritional therapy and, and botanical therapy. Um, so I, I, the, the other thing is that these immune therapies are not metabolized in the liver the way chemotherapies and what are called targeted agents are. And so there's very little um, possibility for botanical supplements and nutritional supplements to interact, to have drug interactions that interfere because these antibodies are broken down in the periphery of the body rather than by the liver. Uh, many, many botanicals, many nutrients do affect the drug metabolizing enzyme systems of the liver. And they, they you know, you've probably heard all the brouhaha about 15 years ago when it was discovered that St. John's wort, um, a botanical that's often useful in depression, often useful in cancer patients because cancer patients are often depressed, mm -hmm. that it enhances the activity of an enzyme that metabolizes um, about half of chemotherapy drugs. And so it would reduce, uh, St. John's where it would cause a reduced level of the chemotherapy drug. So in, in general, my practice has been to advise cancer patients not to take any supplements the day before, the day of, or the day after IV chemotherapy to minimize the possibility of drug interactions that are known or unknown. And um, that's worked very well. When people are taking uh, you know, oral chemotherapy like Zolota for long periods of time, I just have them take it as far away from, uh, in fact, I often have them get up in the middle of the night because there's something called um, uh, chrono, uh, chronotherapy. The circadian rhythms interact with the way uh, cancer drugs work and uh, 5-FU, which is the, the active uh, drug in Zolota, is uh, most active at th between three and four in the morning. So I'd have them take, take it in the morning, uh, in the middle of the night. So it'd be very far away from their supplements. Uh, so anyway, I, I, I think that the future for, combined, for integrated medicine around the new immunotherapies is very, very exciting. And there's not only the checkpoint inhibitors and their, their toxicities are that of causing autoimmune reactions because they're checkpoints on the immune system. So you take away the checkpoint and the immune system can attack virtually any tissue in the body. And mm -hmm. as you probably know, there's an issue with autoimmune disease and what we call leaky gut. 
-hmm. and everybody that's treated with chemotherapy has a leaky gut. So again, if we are able to fully integrate these two worlds um, and, you know, start correcting leaky gut, and there's a whole bunch of things that uh, can do that, I think we would see this, um, you know, the very severe autoimmune reactions to these checkpoint inhibitors decrease. A very mild one is a good sign of, of uh, is associated with efficacy. If people get a mild autoimmune um, inflammation of their liver or uh, their colon or something like that, um, it's often a sign that they're going to get a good response against the tumor. But you don't want the big ones where, you know, they just take out the whole pituitary gland. Things like that happen. Um, <clears throat> so, so with everything that you're saying, which is really fascinating and very exciting in terms of the future of integrative cancer therapy, uh, my question to you is going to be this, and then we'll, re- we'll repeat this at the end. If, if some of our interested listeners wanted to get in touch with an integrative cancer therapist that combines the best of all worlds, h- how would they begin to make the search and know what, who was appropriate? Well, you know, the, the, as I said, there's about 50 clinicians that have studied with Donnie Yance and I, um, and uh, actually we're setting up an academy uh, with a, a a physician from Harvard who's very interested in developing a training program for physicians um, that that I'll be part of. So they could contact the Madiri um, clinic in, um, uh, I'm blocking the name, Ashland, Oregon, and uh, just ask them for practitioners that have studied with them because all of those practitioners have been exposed to me as well as as um, would you, to would Donnie. You, would you spell that name, please? You said it's Madiri. Yeah, M-E-D-E-R-I. Madiri Clinic in Aspen. In Ashland, Ashland, Oregon. Oh, Ashland. I'm sorry, yeah. Ashland. Southern Oregon. Oregon. Right. Excellent. And the so that'd other be a good part, resource. <laughs> that that I, I want to make sure that we that we have that noted in the show notes as well. Um, the other thing is. If you were to choose the top three botanicals to fight cancer, what would they be based on the efficacy that you saw with the Donnie Yance people? The top, well, let me tell you this, Anne-Louise. The, the, it, it is becoming pretty well accepted that cancer begins when a stem cell in the body becomes malignant. And that becomes a cancer stem cell. And from that cancer stem cell, once it gets past the immune defenses so that a, a clinically evident cancer appears, um, all of our treatments, all radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, is all focused on the progeny of that cancer stem cell. There's not a single cancer drug on the market that addresses the cancer stem cell at this point in time. Um, of the drugs that do affect cancer stem cells, one of the most active is the diabetic drug metformin. Huh. And I often use metformin. Uh, I mean, it was clear that diabetics who were on metformin and were treated for cancer had better outcomes than non-diabetics. 
which you would not expect because diabetics no, no. are not as healthy as non-diabetics, but it was the metformin that they were taking that was improving their outcomes. So I often used metformin in non-diabetics as an addition, but the most active agents against cancer stem cells are natural products. And I just, uh, uh, we just had a paper um, accepted for publication in a European journal called Clinical uh, Medicinal Chemistry um, that I think is coming out next month. It's called the Big Five Phytochemicals Targeting Cancer Stem Cells. And those are curcumin, EGCG from green tea, sulforaphane from broccoli, uh, broccoli sprouts or broccoli seed extracts, resveratrol and its cousin, um, pederastilbene, and genistein, a soy, one of the soy isoflavones. <clears throat> the problem or the challenge is getting high enough levels of such natural products in the body. They would be ideally delivered intravenously. That would work fantastically well. Uh -huh. But to deliver them intravenously would definitely make them drugs. And so if you put all five of those together as an IV drug, uh, you'd you know, spend a billion dollars getting it approved. And the, the natural products don't have what's called composition of matter patents, which is what pharma depends on, you know, to get back their, um, their investment and also um, make, you know, what are pretty outrageous profits um, with the, the markups that they're able to get, especially in the cancer field. It, I mean, that's, we've got just runaway costs with these, these new drugs. You know, I'm talking about the excitement of the, the new immunotherapies, but they can run a million dollars a year. Um, so something's gotta, you know, something's gotta happen um, to, to, you know, to get a, get a handle on this. But there's, there's all sorts of other immunotherapies developing, the CAR, CAR T cells, um, bispecific antibodies which bind a cancer cell and a, and a, a natural killer cell or a T lymphocyte um, that have a, a lot of promise. So this whole field is exploding. When I went back into training, what I was interested in was immunotherapy. And we had, you know, IL-2, interleukin-2, and I learned that low-dose interleukin-2 uh, given subcutaneously could really help a lot of my cancer patients, and I, uh, I used that. But it wasn't until the breakthrough with the uh, checkpoint inhibitors that the money started to pour into immunotherapy research, and it continues to pour. And um, when it's discovered that integrative medicine has so much to offer the emerging field of immunotherapy and cancer is when we're going to see things really um, turn around. And we, you know, none too soon because we've created a perfect storm for cancer. I think we're going to see an epidemic of cancer unprecedented um, because we've, you know, we've contaminated the environment with huge amounts of carcinogenic chemicals. Each one was tested by themselves, but nobody ever thought to test them together. And some, some small groups have started to do that. And you take five or six environmental chemicals at levels that people are exposed to in the environment that singly are not carcinogens, and they become carcinogens when you've got five or six of them. So exactly. this has already happened. We're all exposed to it. Babies are born 
with carcinogens in their in their blood that they got from their mother. We've we've industrialized the food supply, and we've created a very stressful environment, and we've divorced ourselves from the natural solar spectrum, and we've got this huge EMF environment that we have no idea what is doing. Um, and I just th these factors that I'm just ticking off, I think are going to drive an epidemic of cancer. So. I think we're gonna have to get way better at treating it, or we're gonna see unprecedented levels of, of suffering, unbelievable medical expenses that can bankrupt company, countries, and a huge amount of human suffering. So my other question to you, you mentioned something very interesting that I took notes. I'm taking feverish notes because this is all very uh, insightful and enlightening information. And there'll, there'll no doubt be questions at the, for this podcast. But how does one keep themselves in parasympathetic balance if one is dr is driven by the sympathetic mm -hmm. nervous Well, system? you know, daily exercise um, kind of stimulates the sympathetic system, but then you get a, a parasympathetic response after that. So daily and exercise burns up uh, the you know the stress hormones that's what they're designed to do you know we we're hardwired for flight or flight when you know adrenaline and cortisol the adrenal glands have kept our species alive because you know when you had to run from the saber-toothed tiger or uh whatever the life uh physical life threat was this allowed us to perform uh at, amazing levels physically but in modern life somebody cuts you off in traffic and you oh. get a big adrenaline response right right somebody no. somebody you know you have a deadline at work and you've got adre adrenaline and cortisol response so we have all these you watch a movie you know, or a tv program that has stuff that triggers adrenaline people like that but there's no place for that adrenaline and cortisol to, to go it's designed to drive maximal physical uh, effort, maximal physical response. And so when we are uh, in modern life, having all these adrenergic uh, uh, stressors stimulating our, our adrenal system and we're not doing any exercise, that gets, you know, that's a toxic soup that we're brewing inside of ourselves. And so daily exercise or nearly daily exercise um, is, you know, helps to burn up all that stuff that's being generated. Uh, it may not be at the same time, you know, ideally if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you should park the car and, you know, run up and down the side of the hill 20 times and get back in your car. Um, so that they, but, but just daily exercise is really important for managing stress. And then practices like meditation and mindfulness and walking in nature, you know, they talk about forest bathing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm walking around on my deck right now looking at pine forests that we're surrounded by. Just being in nature stimulates the parasympathetic response, the relaxation response. I mean, Herbert Benson at Harvard started talking about the relaxation response years, years 30 ago. years ago. Exactly. Are there and any that's key for preventing cancer and recovering from cancer? This is so very important. But my question is, 
so many of my people are foodies. Are there any particular superfoods or nutrients that push you more into parasympathetic? Any minerals that do so? Well, magnesium and potassium are absolutely essential. Um, in general, an alkalinizing diet, a, a, a plant-rich diet, is going to support the parasympathetic system more than, um, you know, than a, an animal protein-rich diet. Um, in early cancers, there is uh, a very good uh, possibility that a ketogenic diet will be helpful. But the ketogenic diet people, what, one of the people that I studied with before I went back and, and be, became an oncologist was Emmanuel Ravisi in New York City. Oh, I knew Emmanuel Ravisi. Yes, I, I studied with him for six years. It took me three years to read his book, that he, his text that he published <laughs> in 1961. I bet. And um, I, I, there's so many insights that I have from having worked with him. And one of them is that the ketogenic diet is in his, uh, in his system catabolic. It supports catabolic metabolism because the ketones are catabolic. And when cancers begin, they're always anabolic. They're, you know, it's an excess of growth. So a catabolic diet, and this is not exactly sympathetic and parasympathetic. There's, you know, there's a number of kind of yin-yang dualisms that uh, you know that go on in human physiology and anabolic catabolic is another one of them but they they fluctuate a healthy person is you know anab goes into the anabolic swing about 4 a.m and that maxes around 10 and then they go into the catabolic swing around 4 p.m and that maxes uh, out in, in the night and then they hit anabolic again but somebody with cancer is fixed either catabolic or anabolic and they're always anabolic in the beginning stages of cancer. So in early cancer, a ketogenic diet is uniformly useful. But when people have been treated, the treatments push them into, a cat into the opposite phase, especially radiation. So any cancers that recur after treatment, a, keto a ketogenic diet is very likely to be counterproductive. And that's not understood by the people who are Ketogenic advocates. Um, working, yeah, working, working with ketogenic diets and cancer. They just think, oh, ketogenic diet's always good for cancer. It just depends what phase the cancer's in. And it's always going to be helpful in the early phases. Fascinating. So that leads me to another question. I know the work of um, Nicholas Gonzalez, may he rest in peace. Nick yes. believed that there was not one diet that worked for every type of cancer. How do you feel about that? Well, my first mentor was William Donald Kelly. So, I, think I, I think I knew that. I was, yes. Oh so, my and, gosh. And, that, and, and that's who Nick Gonzalez's mentor yeah. was. Yes, so, yes, yes. Yeah, I kind of passed the torch to Nick. Uh, I, I went from Kelly to Ravisi. Ravisi was my second mentor. Um, so, you know, Kelly was a very intuitive, uh, he, he, he was a medical intuitive. I didn't know um, that, Dwight, I didn't know that. We have to talk about that offline a little bit. I just want to let you know that my mentor, Dr. Parcells, said she was the one that cured William Donald Kelly. Apparently, ah, that he, I, just so that you know, she was never well, given the credit, but that's what I was he, told. He would certainly not give the credit to anyone else. I, 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 <laughs> I knew his, his personality well. 
Uh, he was a he was a mixture of many things, but he did do some useful things. And you know, he had a whole sympathetic parasympathetic um, paradigm System. for diet. And by asking people lots and lots of questions, and you know whether you would flush when you took 50 milligrams of niacin or not, would separate you into uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic. So he had this computer um, program. This was early days of computers when they ran yes. on cards, you know. And people would fill out these extensive questionnaires, and then he would he divided them into 10 different metabolic types. And Nick simplified that somewhat, made it a little more user-friendly. Um, but they, you know, I, I, I do agree, there's not a one-size-fits-all diet for humans. There are people who are vegans, there are people who are carnivores, and there are people in between who are omnivores, that those are the best diets for them. And it's far beyond our science at this point. Actually, nutrition is, seems like you know, the, the most common thing we eat every day, but biochemically, it's far beyond our science. What happens when food gets into the digestive tract is largely still a black box. And Interesting. it's so complex. It's so far beyond. I mean, we're going to need artificial intelligence systems to manage the amount of data that would be necessary to really understand this. So we don't have a way of really scientifically saying, this is the diet you should eat. People are trying to do that with the microbiome. And the microbiome is incredibly important, and it's also incredibly important to immunotherapy. I know, uh, as an aside, I know uh, an immuno-oncologist in Israel who specializes in melanoma, which is one of the most immunoresponsive of tumors, and he has <clears throat> done um, microbiome transplants from melanoma responders into melanoma non-responders to the same therapy, and made them into responders by transplanting huh. the microbiome of the recovered patient. So this, this tells us that what's going on in our gut, which is, is also hugely complex, but we do know that there's a species called Ackermansia that's highly associated with response to immunotherapy. People who have no Ackermansia are less likely to respond. And I think uh, that uh, at this point, microbiome trans, I think they need to remove the F word. Um, they call them fecal microbiome transplants. And as soon as you say that word fecal, people go, ooh. Um, it, it's kind of analogous to the early days of, of MRI. They were, MRI came from a technique in chemistry called nuclear magnetic resonance. And so they developed these machines and they called them nuclear magnetic resonance scanners. And nobody would get in a machine that was called nuclear. Right. So they, they changed Stop the name. The nuclear. To, magnetic resonance scanning and you know that was fine i think it's the same we, we just need to drop the fecal word and call it microbiome transplants but i think there's um a lot of very useful stuff that can be done with these kinds of transplants but then the diet of the person who has the successful microbiome for whatever therapy also has to be followed because the, the transplanted microbiome will will not thrive with a completely different diet. But that's where, you know, fiber is so important because that's the, you know, we call it a prebiotic now. It's the food for the probiotics. It's the food for the, uh, the microbiome. So low fiber diets 
uh, are problematic. And there's so many, you know, we've just decimated our collective microbiomes with our love affair with antibiotics, which were arguably the biggest breakthrough in medicine in the 20th century and dramatically reduced the um, death rate from infectious diseases. But, you know, we've transferred into a whole epidemic of non-infectious diseases, right. with chronic degenerative diseases, a lot of which is probably driven by the damage we've done to our collective microbiome. So, so if, and I, I believe the gut is the second brain, the gut is so reflected yes. in the skin, the hair, the nails, your whole immune system, there's, there's no question about that. But if you were to tell somebody what not to do, or let's, let's put it this way, let me see, no, no, I think I want to phrase it this way, what wouldn't you do? What are the don'ts to avoid cancer? Don't do this, don't do that, don't wear don't shoes. Eat don't, eat re don't eat refined foods. Don't eat sugar except for celebrations. Um, I, I, you know, I prefer the do list to the don't list. Then what are the do's? The do eat a diet of whole unrefined foods, organic if possible locally grown if possible, um, grown by yourself if possible. Do stay in connection with, with nature. If you live, like if you live in New York City, go spend time in Central Park. It's a little, you know, I'm not sure that New York City would survive if Central Park was, was removed. Right. Uh, it's like the, this little lung uh, for the city. But Connecting with nature is fundamental in ways that we don't understand. And connecting, being outside and being exposed to the solar spectrum that our ancestors evolved under, um, we moved indoors 150 years ago with the, with the Industrial Revolution. And now we live with artificial lighting. And we, I think we need to recreate, we need to learn to recreate the solar spectrum indoors. Yes, we have yes, the technology to do it. We just yes, yes, done. yes. Yes, yes, yes. That's what we, we need to do. You know, I'm in touch with a very interesting Russian-trained Israeli doctor, Dr. Tel Oren. Do you know of him at all? I don't know of him, no. He's I'd like to. You, you, phenomenally interesting. He, as bright as you are, he's almost as bright as you are, which is saying quite a bit. He's kind, he's humble, he's lovely. The two of you would be peas in a pod. He's mm -hmm. a gentleman that um, is, a, is a big believer in, I think he calls it sun replacement therapy. Sun replacement therapy, exactly. So yeah, I would, so he, I would like to be in touch with him. I'm going to get I'm going to get you his contact information shortly, uh, and he also says works with skin cancer. It was an area I also wanted to talk to you about. He has a technique for removing uh, pre-skin cancers and actually skin cancers using a very natural technique with a uh, it's a mixture I think of tetrachlorhydric. It's a TCA. It's an acid that they use for skin Hypoacetic acid, yeah. He uses a 40% solution of that with some other goodies added to it. And he's gotten a complete, a complete um, healing rate with it. And he uses the correct method of Mohs surgery with that. So he knows right. he actually studied. Apparently what they've done now is not the real Mohs surgery. It's a bastardized form of it. Yes, yes. 
terrific. That sounds I, really gotta, terrific. I, I, I wanted to mention that. also that the, the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 in the diet is incredibly important, as you know. And there's a huge imbalance in our, in our culture of way too much omega-6, and most of it's refined and deodorized and you know, oxidized, really trashed yeah, oil. Yeah. Yeah, it's the wrong omega six, but we need the good stuff. We need a little bit of hemp. We need a little bit. Yeah, of we need so we need GLA. We need GLA is the best one, the most anti-inflammatory omega six. The things that will reduce inflammation are the things that will reduce key. cancer. Key, key, key. Reduce inflammation. I love it. Your favorite spices then would be the curcumin that you spoke about, um, broccoli sprouts with the sulforaphane. Any other herbs and spices? Do we like cumin? Do we like garlic? Do we like Yes, we, we like all the spices. The spices are the elite members of the botanical family. These spices are, you know, the, the, they are herbs on steroids, so, so to speak. Uh -huh, I like that. Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, who's the, the Indian uh, researcher at MD Anderson um, who's done so much work with the spices? Agarwal. Bharat Agarwal has published several books on the anti-cancer effects of spices. So virtually every spice is an anti-cancer compound. So you, you cannot go wrong with lots of spices. And I would, you know, I would say that that natural intelligence of our body, which is driven by our taste and our smell, the spices that taste good to you are the ones that are gonna help you the most. Interesting, and that probably would include the cloves. Sure, I mean, every spice. Clove, clove oil is the most uh, potent fat-soluble antioxidant known. It's 50,000 times as potent as vitamin E. I didn't know that. My gosh, you know everything. I didn't <laughs> know that. Wow, so clove oil, so there's something to put, be, when they used to put it on abscesses, there was something to that. You bet, you bet. Um, and there's so much that can be uh, done with essential oils. But I, I think the essential survival skill is to, for each person to learn to tune into their own body, pay attention to what smells good, what tastes good, outside of the, you know, the addictive foods of industry. Um, but amongst real foods, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the shortest good nutritional advice I know is eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. Uh, but to tune in to what, how you feel when you eat something, really paying attention to your body's response to food is the best way to figure out what's the best food for you. I think there are principles that apply um, you know, whole natural foods are always better than uh, refined processed foods. And, you know, frying is probably not such a good way of preparing your food. And broiling is probably not such a good way of preparing food. Um, and, but aside from that, everybody needs to figure out, and we need to teach our children this, you know, to pay attention to what of the whole natural foods makes their, uh, what, what they're drawn to by taste, by smell, and by how you feel when you eat it. I find that is, that, that's a wonderful 
stopping point, Dr. McKee. This has been very, very enlightening. I especially enjoy what you said about nature and forest bathing and the parasympathetic nervous system. And the fact that you were a student of William Donald Kelly just amazes me because our careers have uh, had a very tra a trajectory that's very similar. I almost yes. became became involved with him before I studied with Dr. Parcells and then just did a little turn and went back to school at Columbia, became mm -hmm. more of a, cr a clinical nutritionist. I also worked with Emmanuel Ravisi. I took some of his remedies. I never understood what he was doing. It was very difficult for me to understand, but I yes. thought he was totally brilliant and ahead of the, his time. So I'm delighted that we share some of those milestones on indeed. our path. Now, the book that you have co-authored is called After, After Cancer Care. Care. Is after there cancer any, care? After cancer care. It's a Rodale Press 2015 book. You wrote it with Gerald, is it Limol? Yeah, Jerry Limol and Palav Mehta. Uh, Palav is an oncologist who's the head of integrative oncology at the MD Anderson uh, branch in New Jersey. Um, I forget exactly what it's called. Jerry is a retired integrative um, cardiovascular surgeon and the father-in-law of Mehmet Oz. Yes, I know that. That's why I was going to just mention that. That's so cool. That is so yeah. cool. Yeah, so Jerry, Jerry is a, a, a very good friend. We're actually writing, working on a book together right now about the lymphatic system. I um, love it. I love it. That's, that's another area of great interest to me. So if mm -hmm. people wanted to be in touch with you or follow you, how could they do that? I know that you're not actively consulting anymore. Right. I, I, I am consulting kind of on an institutional basis, but not on a, a patient-specific basis. Um, uh, and I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm working on developing, uh, you know, looking at new technologies that can get really high levels of these natural products in the body, you know, taking them by mouth. Uh, that's a, a, a very active current area of, uh, of interest and research and development for me. Um, at the moment, the um, after cancer after cancer care was written for what's called secondary prevention people that have been treated for cancer to not get it again. But you can take everything in that book except the specificity of the supplement uh, recommendations for different cancer types. And but you can look at what's in all ten or twelve of them and take those. The ones that you find in, you know, across the board, like omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin D and and, um, and polyphenols and so forth. But the same principles apply for preventing cancer in the first place, which we call primary prevention. In fact, we've talked about rewriting the book as a primary uh, cancer prevention book. So it would be uh, prevent prevent cancer care. Prevent cancer care and prevent pre, pre, yeah cancer prevent cancer care and prevent cancer reoccurrence. God forbid if you have cancer. So is it? Do you have a website we can refer to or just? I, I don't. I've never I've never um, been moved to develop a website. Um, I do. I, I I function as the scientific director of a, a nutraceutical company called Life Plus, which is by far most active in Europe. Um, so I, you, I, I know it. I know it well. I know it from the 1980s very well. Yes, the precursor. You were, you were. You've been to Batesville, Arkansas, and not a lot of people uh, can say that. 
<laughs> yes, they wanted me to move to Batesville, Arkansas. Yes, indeed. Those were the days, <laughs> to say the least. Well, yeah. I'm, just, I'm, I'm very pleased that you joined us on the First Lady of Nutrition podcast. I'm delighted that this has given me an opportunity to be back in touch, and I want to thank you for doing such a wonderful forward to James Templeton, my partner's book, I Used to Have Cancer. It gives a lot of credibility. Yes, to yes. It's a very good book. I was very impressed with it. I'm going to let him know. Okay, Dr. Dwight McKee, all the very best. I hope you'll keep in touch. That's all Thank I can you, say. Thank you, Emily. so wonderful. Be well and God bless you. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.